We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Today I have Diane Credenda with me, and Diane works with fertility. In fact, she does some really interesting things with fertility. But she started out with medicine as a radiological tech, and she did that for 20 years. And it wasn't until she slipped through the cracks of Western medicine with an illness that she came to Chinese medicine. And this led to an amazing career change that we're going to get into today, and we're also going to get into fertility and where she stands on this sort of cutting fractal edge of ancient and modern. So, uh, Diane Credendo, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. Happy to have you here. Hey, I'm curious. I have never seen the last name Credendo before. Right. Where's that come from? Okay. It's a name I made up. Um, no wonder I've I- never seen it. When I graduated from acupuncture school, I still had a married name, which, you know, I hadn't used since 1983. And so I felt after my journey through acupuncture and and, uh, my healing process is that I wasn't the same person. So I happened to read a book by Og Mandino called A Gift of Akbar. And I'll try to make it short. It's about this Laplandish fellow who is physically... Unable to, unable to be a you know, normal boy, and his parents don't have much money, and then he loses a parent, and he goes through all these trials and, and journeys through his life. And one day, a star comes down and starts talking to him. I think his name was Julio. And the star said, Julio, once you find your spiritual path, you're, you're, you're going to be okay. And then I'm going to give you this very special message, and it's, and I, but I can't give it to you yet. So he did a lot of journaling and working. Well, it turns out that the town started fighting over the star because they were heading into the dark, you know, months of 
what they do in Lapland. They don't have the sun for months at a time. And the school started fighting for it. The church started fighting for it. And then the store started fighting for it. And they tried to capture the sun to bring it, and it, it imploded. So Julio was lost for a while, but another star came down and, and continued the message. And in the end, when Julio finds his path and becomes the person he wants to be, the star gives him the message. And I don't have it in front of me, but we can certainly um, put it on the, the show notes. And I had to change the spelling. The message was credenda, C-R-E-D-E-N-D-A, because I worked with the Cabralarian Society to make it applicable by my star signs, the time I was born and where everything was in the universe. So I had to change it so that numerically it fit. So uh -huh. I ended up with credenda. There you go. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so often the case, isn't it, that we have these opportunities. Uh, they appear as challenges. Absolutely. They really are. And, uh, and there is a message, but of course you can't get it until you've done the work, you've gone through the process. Exactly. And it takes a lot of patience. Oh boy, yeah, and some fortitude, or at least you learn to get the fortitude. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of that, I am curious, you have a background in medicine, did yes. radiological tech. You got sick and you fell through, as you say, you fell through the cracks, or you fell through, yeah, you fell through the cracks of Western medicine. Right. I'm curious about this because generally speaking, when we think about Western medicine, we think it casts a pretty tight net. Uh-huh. Yeah? Do you mind sharing with us what happened? So, as you know, in Chinese medicine, we have a way to measure things that Western medicine doesn't. They use labs and MRIs. And, you know, how many patients have you had walk into your office and say, the doctors say I'm fine, here are my labs, everything is within normal range, but I feel like crap, and right. there's something wrong. And yes. And so that's where I was. Um, after six months, uh, I was diagnosed with, they called it chronic fatigue syndrome because they didn't know what else to call it. Mm -hmm. And as you know, chronic fatigue manifests very differently in different people. So it's not a blank, it's not, can't really be a blanket uh, diagnosis. No, it's, it's more one of these, we really don't know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it was killing my bone marrow cells and my thyroid got hyperactive and I had one eye that was bulging out. And, and Western medicine gave me drugs mm -hmm. and medicine for my thyroid and liver enzymes were elevated. And after about a year and a half of that, I had labs done and they said, oh, you're fine. And the thing is, I wasn't fine. I was a competitive triathlete. And every time I tried to run, I'd get this elephant skin with rash and itching and I knew I wasn't fine. Mm -hmm. So I went to see an acupuncturist, and within a year and a half, I was back racing. Wow. Yeah. And so at that point, I had a, decided to have a career change. Yeah, that's great. And I'm fine now. I'm not on any medication for thyroid. It's totally healed. It's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. You know, it, it really is. And like you in my clinic, I have lots of folks come in. And all those Western labs, everything looks fine. They say, it's right. fine. Um, in fact, what's the usual thing? They say, there's nothing wrong with you. Right. Um, but people really do have a sense on, on if they're sort of right or not within themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Their energy and their motivation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you're really involved these days 
even though, and I understand you've got a background in athletics and, and, and you've come to this incredible healing through Chinese medicine, but the thing that you're really involved in these days is fertility. Uh-huh, yeah, just kind of fell in my lap. <laughs> How did that happen? Well, I, when I graduated from acupuncture school in 95, I moved here to start a practice. And fertility patients just started coming to see me. Um, there had been a protocol out of um, Sweden. It's the Paulus Protocol, where the in vitro fertilization ladies were having an acupuncture treatment just before and just after embryo transfer. And we had a lot of REs, reproductive endocrinologists, in Denver who were sending their patients to me for care. So when Dr. Magarelli opened his practice here, I made an appointment to go and introduce myself. And I had the Paulus paper. Actually, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, retra I'm gonna retrace that. The paper that I had in my hand was the Stenner-Victorin protocol that demonstrated improvement in uterine blood flow, mm -hmm. which we feel helped get the medications to the area that it needed to go. So I walked in with this little paper and he's an MD, PhD and spent years doing his own research. So I told him I thought acupuncture could help. And he pretty politely said, <laughs> well, if my patients are gonna pay you in chickens, that's okay. But if you're gonna charge them for it, I don't think I can refer them to you because they would do anything I said and it's expensive. And so I shakingly handed him a paper and I said, you know, when you have time, read this paper. Mm. So, And he's kind of a research guy. He is a research guy. Like a I mean, show guy. me the data. Right. And so little by little, I stayed in touch with him. Every time a research paper had been published, I would send it to him, usually physically go there and send it to him and um, hand it to him. Were you stalking this guy? No, I wasn't stalking him. <laughs> No, in my heart of hearts, I, I believed that we could help these patients. And so little by little, his patients found me on their own and began seeing me. And what he began to notice was they responded better to the meds, they were more relaxed, and if there was bad news, they tended to take it a little more easily. That's really interesting. So, yeah. so these patients found you on their own, and then he just started observationally noticing these people were different. Right. And then he had a handful, I want to say five or six patients that he'd worked with for a couple of years who, you know, where they were older, um, they were what we call low responders, maybe more severe male factor. And these few patients he found, if he got them pregnant, they wouldn't stay pregnant. And he wasn't able to recruit as many uh, eggs as what he thought. So he sat down with each patient. He said, look, there's this little acupuncturist in town and I've done some homework and I really don't think it would hurt. If you feel like you want to add that to your IVF cycle next time, give her a call. Mm. And what he noticed was they responded better if they got pregnant. I think only, I think only one out of six didn't carry that pregnancy. That yeah. is quite a, uh, a number there, isn't it? Yeah. Amazing. And and so he, he called me one day and said, okay, Diane, I don't know what it is, but, but let's do some research. And I think really he wanted to sort of prove that it wasn't going to help if we looked at the data. We collected the data for about four years, and we didn't even look at it. And we met for dinner one night, and we broke open the data. 
And he was amazed. He was amazed at the pregnancy rates and the miscarriage rates and ectopic rates had declined. And so he said, okay, let's keep going. Let's, let's break it down into like the good prognosis patients, all IVF patients, maybe the poor responder patients, and then look at that. So over the last 12 years or 13 years, we've done a lot of research. And what we've, and so it's interesting, as you know, Michael, the, the studies that have been done recently are usually with the Paulus protocol, which is one before embryo transfer and one after. Mm-hmm. I know from Chinese medicine that acupuncture is dose sensitive. Yes. So it didn't make sense to me that a treatment 20 minutes before embryo transfer and one 20 minutes after would really make that much difference. In the paper, 14% increased chance of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So when we looked at our data, we had that. We had about 13 to 14% increased pregnancy rates. But I had developed this protocol based on 11 treatments. And I was really kind of disappointed thinking, gosh, I think it should have helped more than that. So I went out for my run that day and I was thinking about this research and I went, okay, all right, so more pregnancies. Well, what about the babies? Uh-huh. You know, what about the take-home babies? Mm-hmm. So I called them still What about sweaty. the vitality? Exactly, right. So I called them still sweaty from my run saying, Dr. Meg, Dr. Meg, I had this idea, is there a way that we can track if the patient gets pregnant, are they getting a take-home baby? And he said, oh, of course, we have to report that data to CDC. And so we spent the next couple of years digging up that and ferreting out that information. And that is where we found the biggest difference. So those who got pregnant stayed pregnant. Some of our data actually showed like a 25%, let me look at my notes here, uh, 50% more births per baby. And this was on the low responders, of course, the ones who are expected not to do as well through an IVF cycle. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was huge. Yeah, it is. You know, one of the things I always talk about my fertility patients with is it's one thing to get pregnant. And, you know, really getting you pregnant it's not that, in some ways, it's not that big a deal. But having you stay pregnant and having you carry a healthy, vital child to term that has everything that it needs. Absolutely. For its life. Right. That's another so, story. Absolutely. And of course, because I'm a triathlete, I always explain things in, in terms of sports to my patients. Mm. So I say, first of all, when I talk to them about preconception care, meaning you know, take three months before you head into your IVF cycle to get balanced and healthy and create a healthy environment. I say, I would never show up at the start line of a triathlon without having trained. Right. Because that finish line is the take-home baby. That's my goal. Not getting to the start line, but it's the finish line. Even these low responders were not just getting pregnant, but they, they were carrying healthy children's term. Exactly. And, and we, you know, we found fewer miscarriages, um, fewer ectopics, as a matter of fact. I think there were zero ectopics in our good prognosis patients. It's been amazing. You know, there's, I love the approach that he took, which I think is so indicative of so many scientists and really kind of the scientific way of looking at the world. Let's prove this thing doesn't work. <laughs> right. You know, in, instead of having a chip on your shoulder, we're going to prove it works. 
right? I've got a narrative here and I want to prove it one way or another. I live in Missouri, right? The show me state. Sure. And I think there's really something to bringing that skeptical and open mind. Absolutely. To any endeavor. Yes. And it's interesting because we tried very hard to get this data published. And because it didn't really fit into the Western box, we had a lot of trouble. So research that we got published in Fertility and Sterility in 2009 actually measured the difference between the cortisol and prolactin between IVF alone versus IVF plus acupuncture. And we were able to actually prove that the acupuncture offset the side effects of the medication in terms of keeping the ladies in a more fertile state. So the IVF patients alone, we saw their cortisols and prolactins taking a dive right around trigger, which would be ovulation for them. Mm -hmm. And then it would just sort of peter off. Okay. So I'm curious, in everyday terms for our listeners... Absolutely. Why does that matter? So cortisol, we always think as acupuncturists, oh, we're going to relax our patients. We're going to calm their cortisol down. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. At times in the menstrual cycle, you need your cortisol high and your prolactin high. And that is around ovulation because guess what? That's in Chinese medicine, a very yang active phase. Right. For me to go out and do a yang run, right? Mm -hmm. I need cortisol. I need something to boot my, my system into completing that run. So we scoured the literature from the 40s and 50s and found papers that were published on what is a fertile, is a normal fertile biphasic cortisol and prolactin levels in a fer normal fertile state. And it turns out that the cortisol and prolactin rise right around ovulation and then they hang for a few days, and then they very gradually drop down. So the curve is very slow. So the IVF totally dropped down at that point. So their bodies were not in homeostasis. They are not in as fertile state as, as the acupuncture kept that cortisol and prolactin up. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, you know, the points you use for blood pressure. There's not a blood pressure point that reduces or increases. There's more regulate. That's right. Harmonize and balance. Exactly. So when we harmonize and balance these women who were given a lot of hormones and gonadotropins, we actually restored the normal fertile state. That's fascinating. So you were looking at what is the normal curve of these particular hormones, noticing that women in IVF cycle were not following that. Exactly. But they'd get closer to it with acupuncture. Right. And it turns out that around the fifth to the eighth treatment is where we saw that change. Ah, dose dependent, as you were saying. Exactly. Exactly. And recently, Michael, I don't know if you've read the, the newest one that actually supported our data 100% about the cortisol in the follicular fluid of the women. No, I've not. I've not. No, I haven't read this one. Yeah, I'll have to send it to you. Great. And we were excited. It just supported everything that we did our research on. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. I want to backtrack for just a moment. You sure. used a term that I really like. And I know with the patients that I see when they're thinking about conceiving or preconception, as you said, I love that term. You know, they do things like folic acid and, and some, some vitamins and that sort of thing. Two questions. One, 
when you're thinking of preconception, what are you thinking about? And the other, this is something that's just come to my attention recently, that there's a genetic type of person, I, I guess it's one-third of the population, and they don't methylate their, their folic acid very well, so they need a, a methylated version. And I'm wondering how that plays into this mix as well. Well, it's very common, and it's called MTHFR. Every single one of my patients, um, I put on a methyl tetrahydrofolate and a methyl cobalamin with B6 and also trimethylglycine for the homocysteine levels. Uh, it's interesting, Michael, because I, I have MTHFR, and I, I don't know what percent of the population, but it's something like 30 to 40%. It's huge. That's what I've heard. Yes. And it not only affects neural tube spinal stuff like spina bifida, but also great vessels. Example, my first child was born with a heart defect. And all these years, I've asked the doctors, what do you think it was? What do you think it was? And they say, well, so many, you know, certain percent of babies are born with this. Maybe it's, you know, in 30 years, we'll find that it was something in the Campbell soup. Mm. Well, I did some homework on that. And it turns out that folic acid is responsible for those great vessels of the heart. So I put every single one of my patients, they don't even have to test for M MTHFR. I just automatically put them on the, the methyl tetrahydrofolate. The methylated versions. Absolutely. Because even if they, even if they can methylate, it's not going to hurt them to take that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So there's that piece. Yes. Talk to us about preconception. When you're looking to help women get fertile, get pregnant, stay pregnant, bring right. home a baby. Right. What, do you, what kind of things do you talk about when you talk about preconception? Well, first, I, I give them the scenario about having to, to train for a race because they won't get the take-home baby finish line, you know, if everything isn't in place. Many women think they have an, a normal menstrual cycle, and maybe they're having a cycle maybe every 40 to 42 days, but it kind of comes on time, you know, within that range. But really, optimal is between 28 and 30. They don't think twice that maybe they skip a month, you know, and so... You, as you know, when you learn Chinese gynecology, what they say is regulate the menstrual cycle to en enhance fertility. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, this is America. We have so many chemicals and phthalates and BPAs, and the food we eat is not always that nutritious. So I try and guide them to what things to do, what things not to do. Many women have cold uterus, right? You put your hand on their uterus and it feels cold. Yeah, you put your hand on the belly. It's, it's amazing. It's like there's a refrigerator there, even in the summertime. I know. So guess what I say? Embryos don't grow in refrigerators. That's why chickens sit on their eggs, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I guide them no ice water, warm teas, soup, bone broth. I pay a lot of attention to digestion, probiotics, because truthfully, we are not what we eat, we are what we absorb. And so if our GI tract is not optimally digesting and transforming, transporting our food into the cells, we're not going to be, no baby's going to want to be in that environment. Right. Yeah. I mean, nature is fabulously intelligent. It is. It's not going to let things happen that really don't have a chance of, of happening and happening well. Exactly. 
And the, the other thing, there's been a lot of research now on vitamin D3 deficiency, vitamin D deficiency. So all of my patients get put on vitamin D3 plus K, which is going to help them absorb it, or I send them out to get some fermented cod liver oil and take mm. that. Yeah, that stuff's delicious. Yeah, it's actually not bad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Why the vitamin K with the vitamin, vitamin D? Vitamin K helps them absorb the vitamin D. And many women are checked, and I think the range goes from something like 25 to, I think, 100. So if you're within that range, 25 to 100, they say you're okay. Maybe you're 26, and they say you're okay. That's not very okay. It's not okay because uh -huh. you want to be optimal. And the studies they've done is you need to be between 50 and 60 nanograms per deciliter for optimal fertility. It's been a lot of study with IVF patients and getting their vitamin D in an optimal range, and they have a lot better outcome. Mm -hmm. So there's documented research on that. There are. There's lots of it. Just type in vitamin D, pregnancy, IVF. Okay. So you've got them on some vitamins. You've got them on the methylated versions of the ones that that needs to happen. Yes, I put everybody on a probiotic. Mm -hmm. No cold foods. Exactly, cold, warm. And then, of course, depending on where I find their body is not balanced, I start correcting with herbs and acupuncture, lifestyle changes. You know, sometimes it's just I want you to go for a 20-minute walk every day, you know? Just get out in the sun, do a 20-minute walk. Build your vitamin D. Exactly. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. Okay, so what about if you Google up fertility, you're going to find all kinds of stuff, right? Right. Some of it helpful, some of it probably not so helpful. What are some of the common misconceptions around fertility from the nutrition point of view? Hmm. Maybe oysters make you horny? <laughs> well, they're delicious. <laughs> they are. They make you happy. Well, well, also, it's interesting because they are high in zinc. And there was a recent paper, and I'll put a link to the podcast, mm -hmm. um, a recent paper that basically talked about, you know, when you read Machiocha, who's one of our mentors in Chinese medicine with fertility, he talks about when the sperm fertilizes the egg, it creates the divine spark. Mm. Have you heard that term before? When yes. I teach, I, I call that divine spark. Yeah. Well, it turns out that the Nor Northwestern University led an in interdisciplinary team. They found that sparks literally fly when a sperm and an egg hit it off. <laughs> it's, it's cool. We'll, we'll put a link because they actually show yeah. a picture, and it's some kind of a high-tech photon camera or something, some cutting-edge technology. Love it. They found that zinc fluctuations play a, a, a huge role in regulating the biomechanical process that ensures that an egg is fertilized and transitions into a healthy embryo. Mm -hmm. They even asked the question, can we look at these embryos and see which ones are healthy by the amount of zinc around that embryo? Of course, now we have chromosomal screening you know, that will take one cell from each embryo 
to find out which, which ones are good or bad or which ones are genetically. But I just thought it was so cool. It's, it amazes me how Chinese medicine, how did they come out? How did they know back then? You know, it's a good question. And, you know, I get asked this stuff all the time in my clinic is how did, how did they figure this stuff out? Yeah. You know, 1800 years ago, 2000 years ago, whenever. Because now we've got technology and tests and things that can look at nature in a certain way. They certainly didn't have that back then. But no, they didn't. But you know, we really don't know how people's perceptual systems were tuned. Exactly. Back when, when you're living, you know, closer to nature, more in rhythms with nature. Right. Who knows? We don't know. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think, you know, a lot of, when I studied in China, I was there when they were testing Qigong masters, and, and they had these amp meters that the Qigong master would put his hand near, and you would see that amp meter go up. Wow. And they used thermography to look at, uh, what is it, Lao Gong, which is the point in the center of the mm-hmm. hand. So they'd set up a chair, and, and the Qigong master would put his hand up on the chair, and then they had the thermogram machine, you know, a distance away. And when he closed his eyes and concentrated his energy, you could see the palm of his hand turned into this little laser, like red energy. Yeah. Do you use thermography at all in your practice or in your work? You know, I do not. I think thermography is helpful in breast exams. I think it can catch things a lot sooner than mammography. I've heard the same thing. And I know there was a huge discussion on our, our panel the other day about it. No, I, I do not. I mean, I know it's going to show inflammation. It's going to show cold spots, hot spots. But I mean, a lot of that stuff, you kind of know most of our patients are inflamed just because we live in America. Mm-hmm. And in most places, you can put your hand on their tummies and you can feel the cold spots. Right. But some yeah, do. It- yeah, some do use it. Some acupuncturists do use it. Yeah, I was, I was just curious. I have a lot of folks, when they come into my clinic and I ask about diet, they say, well, you know, I eat pretty good. It, of course, I have no idea what that means. Of course, I eat a healthy diet. Yeah, so I ask for more information and come back with things like, well, you know, I eat low fat, I eat yogurt for breakfast, you know, blah, blah, blah. Have you looked at how much sugar is in that yogurt? Exactly. So... Any guidelines from your point of view on how people might want to eat for fertility? Well, I think it's more important to look at what not to eat and what not to expose your body to. You know, there's a lot of, oh gosh, I mean, we could go on for days about food doesn't have the nutrients that it used to have or we don't grow our own organic things anymore and a lot of the pesticides and things can disrupt our endocrine system. Mm -hmm. And so I recommend my patients read a book called It Starts With the Egg. And I like that because it's a story of one woman's journey and how she changed the games of her, how she changed her fertility markers and ended up having a baby by looking at phthalates, BPAs, chemicals in their wonderful smelly lotions and shampoos. (laughs) nail polish, those kinds of things, and cleaning products within our home as well. And so definitely, I would guide my patients, take a look at that. Just Google endocrine disruptors, find out where they are and eliminate them. Then eat home-cooked meals, organic as much as possible. If you can get grass-fed beef, that's the best. 
variety of foods, fish, and you can Google which ones have higher mercury content. Mm -hmm. And you want the wild ones too, not the farmed. Not, not farmed. And fruits, you know, everybody thinks that, oh, I eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Well, that's great vegetables as long as you're eating up above the ground leafy green vegetables. Potatoes, corn is not a vegetable, in fact. <laughs> corn is a grain. So I guide my patients. Grain has got a big, there's a lot of research being done now on how grain is inflammatory to our system. And I am a full believer that good fats help your body. You know, our hormones start with cholesterol. Cholesterol is a fat, right? And it's absolutely essential for an incredible array of hormonal cascades. So I teach them, what are the good fats? What are the fats to avoid? They look at me like I have six heads when I tell them, put a little bit of grass-fed butter on your steak or, <laughs> you know, and use some salt on your, you know, salt is good for our adrenal glands. Most of us walk around in fight or flight adrenal uh, to some kind of adrenal distress every day just because we live in America. Right. And it's worse if you turn on your TV. Absolutely. Absolutely. So carbs are, I tell my patients, carbs are, should be the lowest. If you turn the food pyramid upside down, carbs and, and um, those kinds of things are lowest. And by the way, fruits are carbs. It's a better sugar than if you were to drink juice because it has everything else in it, fiber and everything else. However, berries are better. They have more antioxidants. They're lower in sugar. If you're going to have a banana, you have a bite or maybe two bites of a banana because they're so high in sugar. And this is what's causing inflammation in our bodies. Fats will not spike your insulin. Proteins will spike your will will raise the insulin, but it's much slower. Carbs spike it, and then you crash, and you end up crashing, spiking, crashing, spiking all day long. And that's going to create a lot of inflammation. So good fats. Um, what are some good fats, some things that you consider good fats that our listeners might raise their eyebrows at? Butter. <laughs> yeah, butter, but it should be grass-fed because everybody thought doctors thought that people's cholesterols were elevated because of the fat we were eating. And of course, we eat a lot of red meat. Well, it turns out the data is now showing that it's not the meat that's causing the cholesterol. It's what we feed our meat. It's what we feed our animals. It's the grains that are disrupting the omegas six and threes. It's putting it in a reverse pattern. So Grass-fed beef will give you the good fats. Grass-fed butter is a better source of fats. Plus, it doesn't have all those added hormones that they give the cows these days. Exactly. You know, well, gra you know cows are meant to eat grass. What, whatever, whoever thought we should be feeding them grains? Uh, it makes them fat and tasty. Exactly. Right. And they get more money. Yeah. Right? I, okay. I was talking the other day with a fellow here in St. Louis. He has a butcher shop kind of an artisan butcher shop, and all they do is pasture-raised meats. It's not a sideline. It's the only thing they do. In fact, he, he's going to be on the show. And I asked him about, you know, you're in there chopping these animals up, right? What do you see as a difference between a conventionally raised cow, for example, and one that's grass-fed? And he says, the grass-fed ones are smaller. Their meat is a different color. They've got much less fat in the meat. Yes, because they're, you know, they're living as cows are supposed to live, and they don't have all this extra fat and inflammation. 
Yeah, exactly. And many of the farmers here in Colorado will take one truck and they'll sneak out and just kind of separate one of the cows so they don't cause a lot of confusion or adrenals response in the cow. And she, they bring them back and they humanely kill them, you know, and then they, they sell their meat. Mm-hmm. So it's very different than putting them in a, the feedlot and then lining them all up. So it's not just the meat, it's all the other things that are in there along with it. Exactly. That can be the problem. And of course, coconut oil, we always thought we should be cooking with olive oil, but it turns out that olive oil, when it's heated, will create um, oxidation. So olive oil, raw, on salads, on vegetables, and coconut oil is best for cooking. Or I even think avocado oil is has a low burn, as does, I'm trying to think, hemp, I think, is another one. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to use those because you'll basically make your own trans fats. Right. The, the olive oil will. The olive oil will. You know what I found to be pretty tasty? A mixture of coconut oil and ghee. Yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. I don't have to really add any other spices. That's it. Yeah. No, yeah. I know. It's, it's incredible. That's how we do our fish. We, we dip it in egg and coat it with coconut flour and saute it in ghee oh, man. or butter. Sounds yeah. great. Fabulous. Yeah, and then, and then you follow it with a cup of hot buttered coffee, right? Absolutely. Actually, that's a morning thing for me. In the <laughs> afternoon, I do bouillon with butter and coconut. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I guess uh, bone broth with butter and coconut would probably also work, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we do make our own bone broth here. It's pretty amazing. You know, and that's one thing, bone broth, we know it heals the, it heals the gut. So between probiotics and bone broth soup and avoiding, you know, anything like I tell my patients not don't drink tap water. There is another product out there that I discovered. It's it's by Great Lakes and it's a gelatin. It's a powder gelatin. So I tell my patients, if you don't have hours to make bone broth soup, then get this uh, gelatin and have, you know, a teaspoon or two teaspoons a day of that. It's collagen Mm -hmm. to heal the, the intestines. Yeah, I remember a teacher when I was in Chinese medicine school talked about, in the winter in particular, rendering down, I don't know, it's probably pig's feet and throwing some other herbs and this and that, and you make a jelly out of it. He called yep. it a jelly, right, because his English yep. wasn't so good at jiao, uh-huh. right, a jelly. He said, just keep it in the fridge, just go in there and dip a spoon in and, you know, eat it out of the, you know, eat it like that. Yeah. I thought up. that sounded absolutely disgusting. <laughs> And now I'm like you. I'm making my own bone broth, and I put some herbs in it. I just don't eat it with a spoon. I like to warm it up and throw in a little bit of butter. Make it. Could we get back for a moment to the menstrual cycle? Because, again, this is a little bit like diet for me in my clinic. I have a lot of women come in. They go, oh, yeah, you know, it's kind of normal. Right. Normal for them usually means it's not too unlike how it is for their girlfriends. Sure. Which often means there's some pain or there's some clots or they've got this dark black blood and, mm-hmm. you know, some PMS. Right. And they think of that as normal because that's what their friends are reporting. And it's common. Absolutely. But I wouldn't call it normal. So what would you call a nice, normal, make it kind of fertile period? What would that look like? Right. Well, as you know, each week in the menstrual cycle, something else happens. So in the beginning, it's what we call the follicular phase, and that's where the follicle's being nourished. It's coming through its little journey, and blood is beginning to fill the uterine wall, and it's, it's building uterine wall lining. And then by the time ovulation, so after ovulation is called the luteal phase, 
after ovulation, when the gal ovulates, then that's the yang phase, luteal phase. And that's where hopefully the oocyte makes it down into the fallopian tube. There's sperm waiting there saying, pick me, pick me. It's fertilized in the fallopian tube and it drops into the uterine wall lining, which should be plush, warm, and there should be no old uterine wall lining in there. So oftentimes, and we know that there are many women who have what are called polyps. Yes. In Chinese medicine, we look at that as blood stagnation. Absolutely. So even though she's having a bleed, she may not shed that uterine wall lining totally. There's a little residual left in there. So typically they can get heavy periods, clotting, that dark grape jelly-like clotting, hadn't thought of it like that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, that's, uh, that's one of my descriptions. Is it Merlot color? Is it bright red? Is it brick red? Mm. Is it pale? Is it mucusy? Yeah. Um, does it ever get like that, like a grape jelly where it's almost kind of brown purple, exactly what you described. So my goal is to regulate that. I use thermal rhythm charts, better known as basal body temperature charts with my patients as mm-hmm. well. Because that gives me an idea of where they need the most help. They may have a beautiful follicular phase, but the luteal phase may be seesaw. It may not rise. It may do the, you know, rise and then fall, rise and fall. And that gives me an idea of how in Chinese medicine, which organs to work with, which herbs to prescribe. And once you regulate their cycle, it's a pretty good chance that they will conceive. Now, on the other hand, you have to look at the partner. I was going to ask you about that. It, you know, right. it obviously takes two to tango. Absolutely. In my practice, it's usually the woman coming in. Yes. I, I've got my own opinions. I think there's all kinds of uh, cultural things at play here as well. Yes. Which is why it's always, you know, and I'm putting this in quote, the woman's fault. Exactly. But I think a lot of times it's the woman may actually be pretty good, but the man might, needs a little bit of help. Exactly. And I have that too, Michael. I have a lot of women say, well, I don't know. Uh, My fertility markers are great. It's my husband and I'm coming for acupuncture. So, you know, it's education. I try and talk to them. I say, look, if he doesn't want to come for acupuncture weekly, at least bring him in for an herb consult. Let me get him on supplements that he needs. Let me prescribe some herbs to help him. Let me get him you know, lifestyle changes, maybe there's, you know, that factor. We see a lot of military here. So you can imagine, you know, the guys who are deployed, oh my gosh, you know, the the male factor is severe here. And it turns out that it's kind of a 50-50 deal. So 40%, there is an issue with the female, 40%, there's an issue with the male. And then the other 20%, they say, unknown, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of 50-50. In the reproductive endocrinologist world, they feel like they can kind of bypass the male factor when they're doing IVF by doing ICSI. And that's, um, that's a, uh, where they actually take the sperm, they disable the tail so it doesn't swim, mm-hmm. and then they gently inject it into the oocyte. Okay, intercytoplasmic sperm injection. Okay. But... Now, that's quite a method of matchmaking, isn't it? It is. Well, what's interesting to me, Michael, is they look at the sperm. They try and pick the healthiest ones. But if you have a fungus on a piece of cheese, you know that that fungus is going to be within that whole piece of cheese. It just hasn't manifested yet. Right. 
So in my world, in my opinion, you need to create a healthy sperm is our cells, oocytes are cells. If you enhance the health of those cells at a cellular level, you're going to have healthier sperm, no matter what it looks like, right? Right, because if, if the entire environment is more coherent, then all the pieces within it are more coherent and healthier. Exactly. And I actually sat in on, it's, it's interesting because um, I sat in on uh, at ASRM, which is a, um, a society, uh, sorry, American Society for Reproductive Medicine. I sat in on a talk where they actually showed embryos and they showed beautiful ones and ugly ones, meaning, you know, dysmorphic and squished and didn't look like big round cells. And they actually followed those after they were transferred back into the patient. And it turns out that the beautiful looking embryos created fewer pregnancy than the kind of other ones, right? So the message was you can't tell by looking, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So you're right. You have to go to the, the cellular level and correct things there, whether it's herbs, acupuncture, supplements, those kinds of things. What are some of the common things that you suggest guys do or not do to help with their fertility? Well, if they work out at all, I get them to bring all the supplements in because a lot of the supplements that they're taking can be cause sperm demise. So I go through that. I look at, you know, how much beer they drink, how much wine they drink. Um, are they triathletes and spend five hours on a bike? You know, that mm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But Bottom line is most of them, because of the morphology, meaning the shape of the sperm, is, is um, I don't think I've seen a normal morphology account in a sperm analysis in probably five years. You know, the count and the motility may be a little bit off, but the morphology is really the biggest issue. And so antioxidants are huge. CoQ10, again, probiotics, let's get you actually feeding your cells not just your belly. Ah, yeah. Right. And many, you know, many have spleen issues. And of course, spleen makes the blood. It's interesting. I find a lot of guys have what we call yin deficiency, meaning they have too much heat from not enough moisture in their body. Maybe it's because we are in Colorado, but, you know, they get hot at night. They want to put their feet out of the covers. And that's not good for sperm to be in that heat environment. I'm just curious, and this is just for me to help me in my practice. What could I say to a woman patient that she could pass on to her partner that would help incentivize him to come in and get some help? You know, us guys hate going to the doctor, right? I know. If we're having a heart attack, we will drive ourselves to the hospital. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. How do you get a guy to go, yeah, I'm willing to do this? Any thoughts on that? You know, it's interesting because I have the real gung-ho guys, the gung-ho guys who will do anything. I've got a couple right now who I'm treating and they're, they just, they blow me away because they're so, they so want to help, right? Um, and they're willing to make the changes. And, you know, maybe it's a cultural thing, Michael, but I, I think it's for the guys, it's hard on their ego. It's sort of like, you know, a man should be strong and be able to procreate and, and what do you mean my sperm isn't fabulous, you know, and that kind of thing. So it's got to be an emotional, uh, devastating aspect of when they're told that. 
Sure. So for me, I just try and explain to them, look, you know, if I'm going to do a triathlon, here I go again. And it's going to include a swim, a bike, and a run. And I only train for the swim and the bike, but I don't run. Do you think I'm going to get that 13.2 miles in that I haven't trained for? So you have to, you have to work with every single section of that. Mm-hmm. Every sing- and the finish line is a baby. So it takes a little bit of training, takes a little bit of effort, and changes in lifestyle. And it's cool. I've worked with a couple guys who, you know, Dr. Mag is really great because he'll do sperm analysis if I ask him. And we'll do, uh, we did a couple in clinical studies on, this is the before sperm analysis. We usually did about three, you know, just as baseline. And then I'd work with the guys for three months and it was amazing the changes. So you really see a difference happen in a short amount of time. Absolutely. With the count and the motility especially. Morphology takes a little bit longer. You know, motility has to do with being hydrated, right? So if, mm-hmm. if there's the, the guys have this heat and they're dehydrated, even though they drink water, maybe the water is just kind of bouncing off their cells, you know, because yeah, they don't have the nutrients. Because deficient. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. they should probably eat a little more fat too, I would suspect. Right. Exactly. So that sperm can't swim because guess what? It's glommed together in this thick jello stuff. You mm-hmm. want to free that up. Yeah. Yeah, interesting concept. I, I hope I hope more men will, you know, step up to the plate because I, I see a lot of women who get very discouraged and it causes friction between the couple and that's not what we want at that time. We actually want as much harmony as possible. Oh yes. So absolutely. is it? And this may be a leading question, and if it is, just uh, just smack it down. But I just heard you say that with a few months of treatment, you are seeing some really significant changes in sperm morphology, motility, this sort of thing. Right. And count. And count. So is it possible that if a couple wanted to save money and not go through IVF, that maybe you just really work on the fertility side from both the man and the woman? Sure. And see what happens. Well, I don't know about you. I mean, how many times have you had a a woman come in and said, I'm going to go through IVF in two months or three months, I did some reading about preconception care and I decided to come and and get ready for this race. And so you treat her and how many times does she get pregnant on her own? Often enough to have a lot of happy days. Absolutely. I had a gal with an AMH of 0.01. Now what's an AMH? Anti-malarian hormone. It's, um, It's another fertility marker besides FSH. And the AMH is um, a measure of nurse cells that are around each follicle. So the higher the AMH, the better it is, which tells you, gosh, you have a lot of, a lot of nurse cells, so you must have a lot of follicles. Mm-hmm. Versus if you have a low AMH, that means you probably don't have a lot of re- egg reserve because there would be more nurse cells if you had more follicles. And so she was like barely, she was tipping over 0.01 from zero, right? Mm, and after low. two and a half, yeah, very low. And two and a half months, she, she got pregnant. Wow. You know, and so y- you know that, that Dr. Mag and I are married. You know that. So I- I'll call him Paul. So I come home and tell Paul this story. And he just looks at me and he goes, I don't know how you do it. I say, 
you create a healthy environment. There's science and then there's nature. And nature tends to work. You just have to give it the tools it needs. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Anything else that you would like to share with our listeners here before we wind this down today? No, I, I think we got our point across. Acupuncture combined with IVF, you want to just fewer miscarriages, fewer ectopics, fewer multiples, by the way. I didn't mention that. Um, after about 2,000 women in our study, we found that there were, there were 10% fewer multiple pregnancies births in our acupuncture plus IVF group. Wow. Yeah. So what are we doing? We're restoring the woman to her natural state of one healthy baby. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a delightful conversation. Thanks, Michael. And I'll send you some links. Yeah, send me some links. We'll put all that stuff on the show notes page and hopefully folks will find it helpful for them. And give us your website real quick so people can go and have a look. Sure. It's www.eastwinds, plural winds, acupuncture.com. My research is there. I have an infertility page. Wonderful. So it's a great place for people to go and get a bunch of information, both Eastern and Western. Right. And if people are looking for an acupuncturist who's certified in fertility, meaning taken extra classes and written another exam. I'm going to give the website here. It's A-B-O-R-M dot O-R-G. We'll make sure that's on the show notes as well. And uh, so I'll send, I'll send um, Dr. Mag's website as well. He just started a great new program where IVF is uh, under $5,000. Um, he decided that he was going to make some major changes and cool. Wow. Purchasing, he greatly reduced his price. He just saw so many, you know, couples coming in. They'd have their work up, and maybe the tubes were blocked or whatever. And he'd say, "You know, you need IVF." And they'd say, "Thank you very much, Dr. Magarelli, but we really can't afford twelve to forty thousand dollars." So he figured out a way to make it totally affordable. That's great. You know, he was on the show. Uh, a month or so back. Yeah, we had a great conversation about one of our favorite subjects, fat. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was good. Awesome. Dan, thanks again. Thanks, Michael. Okay, take care. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment... Click on the iTunes review button and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week. 